0: You're listening to Worldbuilding for Masochists.
1: And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because I can't resist a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Kate Hartfield.
0: I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca.
1: I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller.
2: And this is Episode 70, Magical Ethics and Ethical Magics. Welcome listeners back to episode 70. We are so excited to have you with us and so excited to welcome Kate Hartfield. Hi, Kate.
3: Hi, I'm so happy to be here.
2: So this is exciting, Kate. First time we've had you as a guest on the show, but we would love to hear a little bit more about you and your work. Would you mind giving us the quick intro?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I am a Canadian writer of novels and novellas and stories and games and Um, all kinds of things. Uh, So I live uh, near Ottawa, Canada, in the very frozen north uh, at the moment. Um, When is it not, really? And uh, my next book is a big historical fantasy called The Embroidered Book, which is coming out uh, in February in the UK and May in uh, the US and Canada. Um, And uh, we can talk more about that whenever you like.
2: Yes, I'd love to. So first of all, solidarity. You are further north than I am, but it is frozen here, too. (laughs) Finally, finally made it.
0: Too cold where I am, and I'm further south (laughs) than all. -all. It's
2: like like single digits here, Marshall. (laughs) That's
0: why I moved further south than all. -all. So,
2: so I, uh, I, I, I appreciate what you're dealing with, Kate. Can you tell us about the new book that's coming out?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the embroidered book is the story of Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, uh, and her sister Charlotte, who was Queen of Naples. But with a little bit of a twist in that they are secretly magicians. So it's set in the real world and in real history, uh, but with magic. And it follows them from when they're pretty young teenagers and they're being sent off to, to marry men that they've never met. Uh, and all the way right up to the French Revolution, uh, so it's a it's a big book, <laughs> you know, lots going on, um, and it's got uh, the magic system sort of underneath the known events of history. Very cool.
1: I love it. I love
0: it. I was gonna say, Cass gave us peak. You have my attention, <laughs> yes. when, when you said Marie Antoinette with magic. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> it's got a good elevator pitch for once. For once, I wrote something with a good elevator mm-hmm. pitch. So yeah.
2: Awesome. I feel like yours yours is a book that I would want to cosplay because it sounds just absolutely <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. The wigs. The wigs
3: alone. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. All the silk. All of it. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. Cause yeah, the wigs of that period always had like like weird things stuck in How them. You, but you, like, can, you can
3: put anything in make it. Make them magic? Yeah. God, yeah, for sure, and all kinds of you know so, interesting symbolism, and um, you know, yeah. there's there you go, a world building wigs episode. Because like, there you go, yeah. <laughs> like,
2: like if only you could magic the boat in your in your yeah. giant hair to actually like to fire like, a volley. Yeah, you know,
0: just or just <laughs> to or, orbit, or just or to sail around your head. The whole <laughs> Let's have circumnavigate
1: your off. hair.
2: Yeah, <laughs> love <laughs> it. Can you, so, what is the magic system in the book like? Can you
3: tell us without it being too spoilery? Yeah, absolutely. I can I can tell you about the magic system. Uh, it's not a problem at all for spoilers. So I wanted it to feel like it, it went back in history a ways. So the book is in the late 1700s uh, in um, several countries in Europe. Uh, but the magic system has been around for a while. And so it's got a little bit of a medieval feel to it. So you have your, your five-pointed star on the floor um, and uh, sacrifices go into the star and... If you want to do any magic, you need to sacrifice uh, part of your body, something that you treasure, a memory, uh, something that you love. Uh, actually, it's your love for the thing that you're sacrificing uh, or your hope. So some of them are quite abstract and uh, you end up writing on a piece of paper, your love for someone or a memory of something. And then all of your sacrifices go into the star. They decay and die, and then you lose what you have sacrificed. And then the object in the middle of the star gets some, sor- some sort of enchantment on it. Uh, so there's a, sort of a heavy price to pay um, for the enchantment uh, and the idea there is I really wanted to represent the way that these women were kind of losing pieces of themselves uh, in service of power and how you have to kind of uh, get rid of your love or your memory or your hope to be able to uh, wield power in certain uh, cases. So it's got a little bit of a dark side, a little bit of decay underneath the shininess of Versailles and that period. Ooh, that is so cool.
0: <laughs> I do love magic systems that are concrete in cost but abstract mm-hmm. in meaning. And yeah, <laughs> and so that is deeply cool. That that it's like it's like you're giving up your you know your sense of whimsy or something. Yeah, but
3: yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. It, that, and that was fun. It was kind of like you know I could decide what was. Uh, what was an appropriate sacrifice for something, and there's this layer of math on top of it because the spells are very mathematical in terms of how much you have to sacrifice. So there's a sort of this Enlightenment-era layer layer on top of it, but underneath it, they really don't know what's happening. They sort of have decided they're going to treat it like math, but it's really a mystery underneath it all.
0: Oh, I love that. (laughs) I love that. To, to even new levels that like you have then you have then these like sort of philosophical debates of like like how much does my love for my cat yeah actually weigh in terms <laughs> exactly of like, oh my god it's worth it's at least that, belgium that... It's... Yeah, yeah
1: definitely yeah. i need i need at least a small country for that but yeah I, like, and, I, and i love that because it's so like i mean that's it's so realistic
2: we don't understand it let's put some math on it that'll make it seem legit. yeah yeah
1: yeah. We, don't, we don't really get what it is, but we're going to grab hold of it yeah. and ride this pony. Put numbers on
3: it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and so it's kind of like, um, you know, drawing on the on the politics of the time. And, you know, I know we're going to get into the question of, you know, then who controls magic. And in the world uh, that I've created, there is a secret society. You know, everyone loves secret societies. And they have long controlled who can do magic. But, of course, there are many, many rogue magicians who do magic anyway, And uh, that is increasing in the lead up to the French Revolution. And so uh, there's a bit of a a tension there as that's changing. I love it. Well, I think
2: that is a a perfect segue to get into what we are talking about today, which is the ethics of magical systems, because it sounds like the ethics of this magical system are very complex and interesting and crunchy, Mm -hmm. crunchy ethics. I mean, creating any magical system involves a ton of choices. Like, we're always making choices of how is the magic going to work? Is it is it naturally derived? Is it some kind of, you know, more scientific kind of thing? Is it innate to a person? You know, all kinds of choices. But each of those choices is going to impact the ethics of how the system works, how the system functions in the society. Um so for you, Kate, when you started developing this system, like, did you start with questions of ethics, or with ethics, or with the questions of, of the choices of the system itself? Like, how did that kind mm-hmm. of, how did those play together in the early workings of this system?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, they play off each other, um, but I think it, it usually starts with me with the pragmatic needs of the plot, right? And I think that one of the reasons why we all as novelists or storytellers uh, tend to limit who can do magic in some way is just the practical problem of if you have a world where everyone can do extremely powerful magic, it becomes really, really difficult to plot, right? It's not impossible. People have, have written those stories, but... You know, it it's just really Hill difficult skit to get,
2: and everyone's just running around. It's like bop, 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 bop. <laughs>
3: exactly. You just have, you know, like magical whiz bangs. It'd be like what that, uh, the battle in, in Sword and in the Stone, you know, where it's just like everything's <laughs> yes. destroyed immediately, and that's the end of the story. Yeah. So I think, I think it came from practical constraints a little bit in that. Um, you know, not everybody could do magic and not everybody could do magic easily. It had to be, especially since I wanted to fit this story into, into known historical facts. So I couldn't really overturn a bunch of things. So and I, I think that that uh, comes up in every book that I can think of um, that has magicians in it is that there's something limiting who can do it. And sometimes it's, you know, it's inborn or it's a skill that you develop or it's a little bit of both, like something like book. Uh, Greenbone Saga, um, the people who can wield jade, the magical jade um, have, uh, you know, have an inborn ability to do that, but they have to learn how to control it, for example. So there are a lot of kind of hybrid situations like that, too.
1: It's such an interesting question, because if we're talking about the ethics of magic, this obviously works on two different levels, like it's within the story. And then it's like the ethics of what are we as storytellers doing? And the instant we make it one or the other, we're making some kind of a choice. And there's a lot wrapped up in, okay, if it's innate, if it's in the blood, what am I saying about magic? What am I saying about the people who have magic? Am I setting myself up for some complex caste systems and things Mm -hmm. like that? Or are there ways to negotiate around it? And so that that first innate choice is so critical to sort of everything else we're going to talk about in -hmm. this episode, I'm sure. (laughs)
0: Like, if access is something genetic, then, then you're already, you're opening a whole can of worms mm-hmm. right there.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah, you
3: have two categories of humans all of a sudden, and that is usually never good, right? So, yeah. <laughs> it certainly has complications.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. <laughs> when you have different categories of
2: humans.
1: Yeah. That's why I was like, I mean, it is innate, but the gods did it, and the gods are jerks. Yeah. So that sort of got me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, the gods choose, and these gods are assholes, so yeah. it's fine.
0: To to bring up Fondas again, I think that's a good example of doing that in a way that sort of feels value neutral. In that it's the people who who are from this island, which is the only island you can find the thing. So it makes sense that they've sort of like absorbed a certain amount of background radiation that, that mm-hmm. makes them capable of using it over the course of time, rather than everybody else yeah. in the world. So there there there's a there's a world that you'd love to see jump ahead a couple hundred years to see what happens when when that changes. Yeah. Not that we. I mean, we do want Fonda to write more and <laughs> yeah, more.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
3: Fonda, we have yeah. a quick request.
2: <laughs> we want to let <laughs> her rest, too. <laughs> yeah. If
0: she would take requests, that yeah, would be Yeah,
3: Yeah, and I think that that example gets to, you know, how you can deal with innate magic in a way that is not kind of, you know, squicky, is that, you, you know, having a reason for why it's like that, maybe, or even if even if it's kind of a little bit unknown, but there's, there's some sort of, um, you know, logic behind it. And then also the idea that it's not, necessarily 100% good to have magic either right like it can be painful it can be like a drug you know it can be difficult um so that makes it a little bit more nuanced as well and then I think playing with the question too of okay so if you have innate inborn magic some people have it some people don't
2: um is the person with the magic necessarily in control of their own life or their own agency because you have social systems that build up to control that getting Melissa Caruso's books do that really well. Mm-hmm. That it says we have an entire social system and political system built around controlling the magic. So it's, yeah, you're yeah. special. You're born with magic, but that means you're an asset of the state. You're an <laughs> asset, right? You're a tool now. Like, you, you don't get to be you. You don't have your own agency completely. You know, there's those kind of those fun Mm. things to fun, yeah, Mm -hmm. enslaving people's fun. (laughs) They're they're fun for the writer. (laughs) (laughs) The
3: characters not so much. Yeah, not so much. (laughs) Our
0: our job is to chase our characters up trees and throw rocks at them. So
1: yeah, (laughs) yeah. If you ever doubted that writers are just assholes. This is world building for masochists, but we're actually all
2: seers yeah, secretly. Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: sorry.
0: We're switches. We're switches. Sorry, That's not sorry.
2: Is. Hopefully, you also enjoy world reading. building for switches. <laughs> yeah.
3: Here we go.
0: That wouldn't have made as Rebrand. much sense. As a title.
1: <laughs> Rebrand. <laughs> but no, I, I think I think you're spot on. With those
2: early choices like direct a lot of your ethical questions, right? Like if if it's tied to only certain, certain people can practice or if it's tied to this land is in fact magical or this element is in fact magical and so who controls that like as soon as you bring control into it you've got questions of how do the ethics
3: work mm-hmm. like what you were saying Rowena about the the state control you know and how that comes into it and the first book that always comes into my head whenever I start talking about magic is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell and you know there you have magicians who feel it's their duty to somehow you know serve the state and it's almost unquestioned that okay well if we have two magicians in the country and we're currently at war then clearly what we will do is is use that for war um and uh that question of you know what belongs to the state and what doesn't and can a magician just do what they want with their magic is really fascinating
1: i feel like proportions comes into play here too because like That system of how much government or religion or whatever controls magic users is going to be different if your magical people are one in a hundred versus one in a thousand versus one in a million versus one in ten versus nine in ten. And suddenly you've probably got a magic controlled system. And, And so like figuring that out in your world building is also an important choice. How many magic users are there? What proportion of the population are they and how much control can they exert by virtue of that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's something that I started talking about in my my book as well, um, because, uh, because I have magical queens. And so the question then is, um, should the state, does the state have a responsibility to use magic to make things better for people? And then the flip side of that is, should then the state make sure that everyone has access to magic themselves? And I think that those two, questions are kind of uh, enlightened absolutism you know should we be using magic to make the world better versus democracy should everybody have access to magic and then the classic um, arguments come up with the idea that well if everyone had access to magic you'd have people who are not you know suited to it and who will be sacrificing their organs and who will you know do harm to themselves and can they really be trusted to use magic and so of course it just becomes kind of a mirror of the real world in a lot of ways
1: yeah like do you have the right to sacrifice your kidney Mm -hmm. for magic is that something you should be allowed to do like if you're if that's what you want to do then Mm -hmm. is that a more power to you situation or is it like we need to protect you from yourself i mean we all know that you give humans absolutely any
2: tools in the world and they will immediately use it to like bonk their neighbor on the head and then (laughs) drop it on their foot like (laughs) we do know this about people we are not the most trustworthy creatures in the world when it comes to to handling things that are supposed to be even for our benefit
0: well on top of that with the sort of system that kate's come up with you can have like for my first spell i'm going to sacrifice my sense of empathy (laughs) and for my next spell i'm going to sacrifice my capacity to care for any other human
2: (laughs) oh no i
1: have become a supervillain whoops
0: whoops myself
1: straight into the dark triad right there just
0: (laughs) made those choices one and two right off the bat
2: well i think to cast what you're talking about in terms of your proportions with how many people are able to wield magic you also have the question of like what does magic do exactly and how influential or powerful is it because i think that there's a difference in some ways between how you deal with wow people can like magic whole armies out of thin air or they can snap their fingers and kill someone versus you know it's you can make rainbows anywhere you want and it's pretty (laughs) you know there's different kind of impact that magic can have and i mean i
0: everyone has magic but only to light
2: candles (laughs) (laughs) or yeah or does everyone have the same magic and so it just kind of like all evens out in the end um i mean it's something i kind of in some ways sidestepped in the setting up the magical system in my world in the torn books because it was like this is magic that has relatively small influence like it's Mm -hmm. just nudging fate one way or another kind of a situation and then they have to start grappling with the questions of but what if it can do more as they start pushing it to do more Mm -hmm. but you know if you have magic that is one person can kind of like I can will myself a little extra luck at the track on race day. Mm -hmm. It has, you know, fewer, probably the same ethical questions, but on a less grand scale than I can rend your flesh from your bones anytime (laughs) I want to.
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that kind of small magic, you know, or or not at least world world ending magic anyway, um, you know, really fits into what humans have have thought about magic for many you know centuries probably millennia right the idea of having like a lucky stone or you know a small curse or something like that um is much more familiar I think to uh, to a lot of people than the idea that you would be able to you know blast fireballs from your hands or something like that
2: I mean it's kind of it, I this is a not very pleasant parallel but the idea of like as weapons develop like the questions about should we even have this Mm -hmm. becomes greater and greater like when all we have are rocks to bonk each other with it's kind of like well it's not mm, we develop guns and it's like oh okay so now you can do a lot more damage oh now now we have machine guns okay this is getting worse nuclear weapons well maybe we need to have a chat about the ethics of this even existing (laughs) versus back when it was just rocks and The purpose is the same, but the scale is so entirely different that the questions shift.
0: It's also, you know, how concrete and repeatable are magical effects? Like, can you, you know, can you possibly be influencing luck or something like that, where the effects of whatever your magic is, is not necessarily measurable or provable, as opposed to if you can snap your fingers and make fire every single time, that's a very different kind of magic and thus you're going to have very different sort of ethical considerations of how that can and will be used
1: can you launch a magical nuke but only once in your lifetime <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, yeah like... exactly.
3: choose wisely yeah
2: and and what's and what's the cost
3: right mm-hmm. like
2: if if okay magical nukes exist in the world but the cost is so great that that the likelihood of anyone ever choosing this is so so obscure it changes the game
0: Everyone has magic, and that magic is to (laughs) explode once.
1: (laughs) Just once. I feel like no one in that society would live past their teenage (laughs) years. This is true.
3: This is true.
2: No one would make it. The
1: the stupid, very short society. All of them.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and I I mean that that presents a really interesting tension for the author too. I think when you have that kind of magic, like I love that. I love the kind of magic where you're never really sure if it's going to work. Um, you know, and like I think Terry Pratchett was really good at that, where the magic seemed like it was never really reliable. The wizards were always, you know, not really sure <laughs> what they were doing. But I think it takes a lot of skill to pull that off and not make it look like you're just being really convenient. Like, oh, this time it didn't work because I needed to not work for my plot
0: here, so you know. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't they just do this? Because then yeah. the book would be <laughs> over.
2: Okay. I I owed about.
1: 80,000 more words on my contract. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> my publisher does not print novellas.
1: I mean, that is a good practical question that authors have to ask themselves sometimes, though. I, I ran into it in the thing I'm drafting right now. It's like, wait, why wouldn't they just do that? Mm-hmm. I have to come up with a reason. I have to come up with a reason in some combination of the world building and the characters that explains why they wouldn't just do this obvious thing. We create barriers for ourselves in ways as much as our characters sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you want to
3: have a story? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found that when I was writing time travel as well, is that it's really similar to magic in that way. Is that if you can time travel, all of the story conflict just, you know, like you have to find <laughs> reasons why they're still going to have problems even though they can time travel. Um, so it's a really similar kind of process of building a system, I think.
2: I think too, the question of when magic is influence and it's manipulation of others in some way, or it's illusion and making things seem like something that they aren't can get into some like fun ethical questions because Mm -hmm. like, is it ever ethical to mislead somebody or to make someone believe something that isn't true? Like if, and this is, this is my dorkiness coming out, but like, when you go back to some of the earliest fantasy, like Spencer's Fairy Queen, a lot of the magic is illusion, and the whole point mm-hmm. is that that that's wrong that mm-hmm. using that making people believe something that is not true is wrong. And so like this is how you know the magic is bad and it's a bad person doing it because they're they're making something appear to be true that's not true,
1: but on the other hand, like the loathly lady stories mm-hmm. where someone who is secretly beautiful pretends to be ugly, like they're sometimes doing a good thing by getting the hero to reveal his prejudices and, and reevaluate mm-hmm. his life. And so it's like, is that is that an ethical deception? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a weird kink that they seem to have, yeah. but you know, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. not, not, not going to judge the fairy ladies for that. Do what you want, fairy lady. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
0: on a level of, is that an ethical thing or not? Like, is that is that their job to, to be judging the, this this prince? Like, who, who, who appointed mm-hmm. them to... To to the board of evaluating princely, it's the arbiter. Princely yeah. You know, they, I, I think
2: I think that was a deleted scene in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. That that fairy who shows up disguised as a crone was she was there on behalf of the board of moral evaluation of princess. Mm-hmm. So she
1: was just checking off yeah. her list. She just had to. You know, it's Tuesday. Time to yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's really interesting is that that theme runs through so many old stories, you know, it makes me think of, um, like, Uther Pendragon and and the conception with the husband who's not really the husband, right, which is, you know, very not okay, you know, from our perspective. Yeah, uh, sets that entire story cycle in motion. Um, But then, yeah, but then you have the other stories of you know, the stranger at the door who is, you know, the, the lesson of the story is you have to show hospitality and then, and then it turns out it's actually, you know, a wizard or something. and Yay, everyone lives happily ever after. So that deception seems to be um, cutting a lot of different ways in old stories.
1: Well, it's, it's something we've talked about before and how magic literalizes a lot of the quandaries we go through as humans. Like, we, we, we face this in our lives without magic. Is it sometimes okay to lie to somebody? out of kindness Mm -hmm. is it sometimes okay to deceive someone for a good purpose magic makes that literal Mm -hmm. and and it's something i i think about when we think about like emotional manipulation um in the oven cycle i can't remember which book this happens in my readers will remember i don't latona she has empathic magic and so she can both project and receive emotions from others and she often uses her projection to calm people to sort of she'll sometimes give them a little boost or she'll like soothes somebody especially her younger sister who has an anxiety disorder but they don't know that because it's ancient rome and they don't know what those are but she wonders at one point she's like is it okay that i do this Mm. am i robbing her of the chance to to feel what she's feeling and and to work through it on her own by projecting this soothing energy at her like she's doing it out of kindness she's doing it to help her sister she thinks but she has a moment where she's like wait is that okay i don't hmm (laughs) I definitely didn't answer it I just had her wonder and was like I'm I'm not answering that question (laughs) in the text readers answer it for yourselves
0: certainly anything where you can affect somebody's mental or emotional state like that that's just huge can of worms in terms of like the ethics of, of what your magic can do like you can like you can you know say you know calm down the crowd but what if like you're doing that to make sure that your fascist dictator stays in power so that the, the so that the riots that would tear him down don't happen like is that is it is it the is action in...
1: or the intent that that defines right. the ethics of the situation yeah
0: and i think so much about how so much in x-men is professor xavier <laughs> <laughs> professor xavier just being like oh yeah i'm just going to erase their memory mm. of this or i'm just going to I'm just going to, you know, make sure that nobody knows that we were just here or calm them all down or just make them freeze in place so we can slip away. And that's often presented as, as you know, he's doing a good thing because, of course, the X-Men are heroes. They're super but...
1: interrogating that in the current era, though, in the Krakoa era of the comics. They are really pulling at that thread. Mm. Um, the whole... That's like, that's really good. The recent Inferno arc with like, there was stuff with Mystique. It's fantastic. I'm not going to spoil it because it hasn't been out that long, but it's really questioning. Like, is Xavier actually a good guy? Mm. Is is he really? Is he really? <laughs> I haven't forgot, forgiven him for uh, UXM 375, where he put his entire team through this psychodrama that made them think that like they were all killing each other because he wanted to figure out who was still loyal to him. And I'm like, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. What did you just not do? Okay. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> but he's like he is so sure of his moral superiority mm-hmm. that he doesn't seem to question when he does those things at
0: all. <laughs> they do a lot of stuff of like him thinking that he has the moral and ethical superiority, and thus whatever he does is is fine, and. This was in in Ultimate X Men, so it was a slightly different universe than that. But there was one where after he had already defeated Magneto, and he had like brainwashed Magneto to just be, you know, to be a good guy, and then later he was, you know, having some doubts, and he goes and talks to Magneto, who basically talks him back into it. It's like you're really just arguing with your younger self because you reprogrammed his brain to think mm-hmm. like you, <laughs> mm-hmm. and but it's presented as like, oh, good he convinced magneto convinced him to get back on the path but it's like is that good is that that it's interesting
2: because it's like like you layer that in with if you have a culture that is paternalistic where you have someone who is like they are acting for the good of society this is we trust this person to make the right choices and we worry less about making our own individual choices like you layer those kind of actions in over that being a correct ethical choice. And it's like, Oh, that makes sense. You push that up against a society where it's like, no, everyone gets their own agency and we make our own choices. And that's not how this works. And then it's like, there's, there's sandpaper tension. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what kind of a society are you, are you dealing with already? Mm -hmm. And then you add the magic in and it like complicates it even further. Something that's ethical in one framework is totally unethical in a different framework.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, are the people with the magic then being like, no, we're we're like your parents, and we're making sure that you stay on good paths and do the right things, and we're taking care of you. But like, no, sorry, this is fascism again. <laughs> <I>
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and I think it sort of gets to where you know where we come in as, as writers, and I think we have we have this tradition of the magic users being the good guys so often, and and because they do have access to to better information, you know, they, they tend to just be a little bit wiser, or at least more knowledgeable in a lot of ways. Um, but then, yeah, uh, we can get ourselves into these situations where they're clearly not acting ethically. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting ground to explore there for sure.
1: And once again, the issue of like, permanence, you know, if I cast an illusion that deceives you for a moment so that I can run away, is that Less bad Mm -hmm. than casting an illusion that tricks you for all time, like something that actually alters your mind and your perception of reality permanently. These things scale in in ways that are I just think so much fun to play with, and they they tangle up with each other so greatly. I love it. So when
2: you're when you're building building your magical ethics and considering the ethics of the magic in your world, like what comes first, the magic or the society that you're plugging it into, and how does that affect what is ethical for the magical system within the world.
3: Yeah, I think um, from my own perspective, because I, I don't tend to write a lot of secondary world stuff, so I'm often working with existing societies or existing history, um, or at least, uh, you know, usually a, an alternate version thereof at, at the most. Um, so I do tend to sort of start with the society and build magic into it in a way that feels like it could have happened, like it is somewhat organic to that world. But I think there are different ways of doing it, and I think especially if you are building a secondary world, then starting with the magic system is a really fun way to kind of say, okay, um, you know, I've written short fiction that way, where you kind of start with what if you could do X, what if you could do Y, and then build the entire world uh, around that, and that can be really fun.
1: Yeah, one of the
2: things I played with um, with the Unraveled Kingdom books was that, so it's, it's a small immigrant community are the ones who are, who are the primary wielders of this particular magic. And, um, so I kind of got to like cop out of it being like, this is part of the larger societies. They kind of have their own rules. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that I, I had as like the strict rule within the subculture is you don't cast curses. And one of the reasons I was imagining this was that you've got a subculture, that they are a very tight-knit community. Community is very important to them, so you don't screw around with other people in the community by casting curses. But at the same time, I kind of based some of the concept of this magic on ancient Roman tablets, Mm -hmm. which curses were, like, way more of them than anything else. So clearly, like, the ethics of doing this particular kind of magic (laughs) could be imagined very differently, where it's like, yeah you just every man for himself i'm going to curse your fields to fail and your horse to trip during the race and whatever mm-hmm. you know so you can you know consider what what is the what's the background ethics already happening that magic is kind of like having to slide into in some way
3: mm-hmm.
0: and also there i mean in a lot of magic systems you see a sort of sense of overbearing ethics to them that are imposed by some sort of unknowing, unseeing thing of like, you know, if you do dark magic, then that's revisited back on you sevenfold or something like that. But like, who's deciding that's dark, therefore that has to be revisited and stuff. Like, is it, what are the, what are the forces that cause that sort of thing? And who, again, like who's the board that decides
2: who, who, who was is, who is the arbiter of the boomerang, of course? Yes. Like, is this?
0: And, and you know, can can I can I talk to a manager of the <laughs> arbitration? Can, can I get a hearing? Well, that's
2: one of those things, too, that I feel like sometimes ends up being like, like, is that actually true? Does it actually happen? Or is that a folk belief or a superstition that kind of, like, you kind of half believe it, so it keeps you in line because you're kind of mm-hmm. afraid of it happening. But, like, in reality, like, no that no the the guy with the hook hand isn't real and the curse coming back on you sevenfold isn't real either
0: that's just a thing we tell the to the magic students because really absolutely there's (laughs) absolutely nothing to stop them from doing all sorts of crazy shit and they're all 17 and it's a problem so we need to we need to just scare the living daylights out of them right now
3: yeah i love the way that love grossman dealt with that in the magicians and the idea that you know yeah you you have people at a magical school who are very young adults and clearly they cannot be told they cannot be trusted (laughs) with some of the stuff that they can actually do and you know with with terrible consequences in the books
2: i think that's it's a good question too of like what are like you have like the kind of like hard ethics and then you also have like the soft social ethics of like well that's just not done Mm. like that's just gauche like Mm. No, that's just tacky to curse your neighbor. (laughs) So Uh, I feel like there's kind of like those, like those, you know, those those rules, or or either imposed from an actual magical board, or um, through kind of you know, like the the it's gonna come around and bite you. And then you also have like the social, like if you have a large enough group of magicians or magic wielders, like you could have social pressure too.
0: I just had the idea of like, yes, you can glamour your knockoff to look like a real Fendi bag, but that's not done. Yeah, <laughs> That's just, okay. that's just in such vortex. What's the,
1: what's the magical equivalent of adding salt to your food at a fancy French restaurant? You know, like, it's like, mm-hmm. mm, you can yeah. make that choice. <laughs> yeah. And we're all gonna look at you like you're a bumpkin and... Yeah, and and the and the, I mean that's sort of that kind of social control sort of factors into the way magic is portrayed in um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, mm-hmm. like you mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier. They There's have a that... societies of magicians who haven't actually practiced for a while, and then Norrell like accumulates all the books and is like, nope, no one gets to learn magic but me. <laughs> Yeah, and they have There's that
3: wonderful line where someone I can't, is it Nelson. Somebody asks um, Jonathan Strange whether he could kill a man by magic, and he says, "Well, I suppose a man could kill a man yes. by magic, but a gentleman never could, right?" And it's just so brilliant the way that it slots into yeah. the ethics of that
0: world. <laughs> yeah. How much of that do you make is just the pure social things, or or is there are there social controls that are more stratified? Like, do you have do you have like a board or you know or the bar or something can somebody can a ma- can a mage mm-hmm. be disbarred and what are the actual consequences of that like can they actually have their magic stripped from them or is it just like nope nope you can't legally practice anymore so so don't do mm-hmm. it wink <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah for sure
0: and, and what level of actual authority do they really have beyond like do they have a magical authority to do that or is it just mm-hmm. the pure social authority yeah like if you
2: have magic in a world you also have a way to magically restrict magic Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and if so hopefully (laughs) who's controlling that how does that
3: work like the Jedi Council something like that yeah Yeah. (laughs) who never makes a mistake no
2: no (laughs) because that's the fun thing right like the Jedi Council gets to be like infallible but like in in the real world like
3: Mm.
2: humans humans are gonna flaw that's like what we do so yeah. it's an interesting question. of like okay, so we realize humans are flawed, so therefore their use of magic would be flawed. So we'd want to have some kind of like way of mitigating that. But then again, any way of mitigating that we create is also
1: flawed. A flawed. System. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have like you have the council who oversees these things, and then you have the internal review mm-hmm. board who oversees the council. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, and see, that leads you to a system where you have to, like, fill out grant applications to perform <laughs> magic. There's paperwork. And,
2: yeah. Oh, God, oh. there's a council meeting on the first Tuesday of every month. Yeah.
0: And... Or say if you have a magic system where, you know, your magic is drawing energy and that is something noticeable or traceable, can it be a thing where it's like the board noticed an unusual amount of energy being... Oh, my
1: God, there's,
2: mag- <laughs> being there's magical in- meter readers.
0: <laughs> oh. I
1: actually feel like I've seen that in a book, and now I can't remember what it was.
0: I, mean, I know the Magicians that. TV show did some stuff like that, yeah. where the li- when the library took took hold of restricting magic, and they did put they did actually put meters yeah. on people's <laughs> Yeah, in the TV show, yeah, they,
1: yeah it was like yeah. <laughs> that might be what I was thinking of. I can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then you would have to have a whole body whose role is policing the legal and ethical use of magic, and it's like, and. How much of then is that up to their decision? Like, well, you use a love potion mm-hmm. to meet your wife, and you're, you know, yeah. We have to take we have to take that away from you, and then we'll see if she stays. <laughs> with you
3: yeah. Or not. yeah, yeah. Love potions, exactly. I mean, it has a long history.
0: Love potions are 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 a deep. Well, because that, 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 very that's opening up
2: the can of worms of consent, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: Which... I don't know. I feel like consent is an interesting benchmark to play with for the ethics of magic.
3: Yeah. And and not, you know, the love potions and, uh, you know, persuasive magic and, um, like Marshall was talking about, you know, calming down magic, um, all of that stuff. And also, um, mind reading, you know, mind reading is, is such a, a violating thing, um, but so common as well.
0: Yeah. What's the, are there rules about whose mind you can read and in what circumstances, if you have, like a whole legal system is, you know, are your thoughts able to be used against you in a mm-hmm. court of law? <laughs>
1: oh, I'd, I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I've also yeah. been like, honestly kind of
2: uncomfortable with um, Star Trek, the concept of you've got the Betazoids and this whole idea of like empathetic feeling reading and like, is that okay? Is it okay to like, I get that that's just how they are. But if not everyone's on the same playing field and you didn't agree to be read by someone, like, is that,
1: is that okay? Mm-hmm. I don't know, because that gets into such interesting territory between like, you know, when you're reading emotions, how much do people reveal already, you know, just from body language and posture and all those things, whether they're consciously aware that they're doing that or not. And, and yeah, the, the line between emotion reading and mind reading is, is different. Those aren't the same thing but is one more or less okay I don't know fortunately mm-hmm. Troy's really bad at her job so it doesn't matter too much with her <laughs> so but... a less awkward. <laughs> so, yeah. she, she
0: doesn't tell you anything that isn't already <laughs> obvious <yeah. laughs> from reading yeah. the body language she's, she's, she's just like angry, articulating
1: yeah. like yeah. <laughs> As, I'm just making sure everyone knows <laughs> that it's a really tense situation right now <laughs>
0: Though Babylon 5 did play with that a lot with how they used telepaths and that and that telepaths were very strictly regulated and you could hire a telepath for say a business transaction but like they had strict rules of what they could do like that they could just monitor you know when you're signing a contract that the other person is being honest and and, and something like that and but not they couldn't like then just like dig out corporate secrets out of your competitor's brain at least legally speaking (laughs) they couldn't do that
1: honestly that gets into too whether it's mind or emotion reading it's like how accurate can it be like if i read your mind or if i'm sensing your truthfulness if you think you're being truthful but you're actually wrong where does that play in? like susan denner did that in um the witchlander series with the truth witch reading it's like well he really believes what he's saying i don't know if that means it's actually true or not so i don't know how useful i actually am in this situation but like it's all these levels to play with yeah truth telling versus accuracy
2: not necessarily the same thing well one thing too i was thinking is you know if it's an innate skill and if many people in society have it or everyone in the society has it, it's just how good you are at it it kind of becomes like well is it we don't question is it ethical for someone to read someone's body language and some of us are better at that than others. Mm-hmm. But is it is it displaying an unfair advantage if you happen to be able to pick up on people's, you know, vocal changes or body language signals better than someone else, any more mm-hmm. so than I can kind of read your mind a little better than Bob over there can? Mm-hmm.
0: Like if it is like an innate ability or or such then like is it any more ethical than yes, the guy who can run faster is going mm-hmm. to win the race. Like
3: Yeah, like math, right? I mean if magic is like math and some people are good at it and some people are like me. you know? yeah. <laughs> so, <yeah.
1: laughs> Or sports. The the one who practices more yeah. is gonna get better at it than, you know, perhaps they were born with equal talent, but one of them spent more time on it, so he's better mm-hmm. at it now. Hmm? Yeah
2: well that i think
1: raises questions
2: of social stratification Mm -hmm. like if magic is tied to social status in some way whether it's you get higher status just by virtue of being a magic person or your government confers some status on you or you just have better earning potential like is there it you know again is it is it about practicing more you get better or is it about you have more innate ability so this is just your on un, uneven playing field to begin
0: with or do you have to get training but like tuition is high so thus only the people from from richer families have that actual ability to then get the training mm-hmm. they need
3: yeah and that gets to the whole question of whether the magic system reinforces existing power structures, or whether it's a way to push back against them, or both, you know, in the book and, um, and what Cass was saying earlier about literalizing. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, putting magic into into the real world or an analog of the real world is, you know, you always run up against this question of, okay, well, then how come the genocides happened, right? I mean, if you have people who can do magic, why did they not put a stop to, you know, slavery? And you have to answer that question in some way, but then that forces you to think, well, we didn't have magic in the real world, but we had the ability to stop these things, right? So, I mean, it does sort of it sort of cycles back to it's actually just literalizing the power that we do have.
1: Something, um, H. G. Perry in the uh, Declaration of the Rights of Mages magicians, and yeah. oh, the two, magicians, yeah. yeah, those those books yeah. uses magic to enforce slavery mm-hmm. and 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 to support the oppressive systems and it's like these things like any tool it can cut whichever kind of way the person wielding it wants it to cut Mm
2: -hmm.
0: is there always that secret magic war that's just going the same way as everything in history already went Mm -hmm. and that's why nothing changed because those things happened exactly the Mm -hmm. same way because of the magic rather than in spite Mm of
3: yeah it's not it's not you know the fault is not in our technology or our magic but you know in ourselves it comes back to that ouch but Mm
0: true (laughs) (laughs) because humans yeah exactly that's sort of the
3: theme of the episode i think
1: (laughs) yeah often frequently but they don't have to be you can make better choices
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can make better choices i mean i know like when going back to questions of consent i hit some sticky points when i was writing velocity of revolution where because the way the magic works in that, like, people's minds are getting, you know, more and more connected to each other, and I have two characters who are fully, fully linked to each other, and then it gets to the point where they're able to take control of each other's bodies at times, and then I was like, this this is gonna get into some very <laughs> sticky consent issues, seeing, seeing how they're very adversarial in their relationship already. I actually had a sex scene that I cut from the book because it was my main character sort of waking up to like, Oh, I'm having sex right mm-hmm. now. And it was like, Hmm, maybe not. Maybe not. That's, that's, that, that's, that, that's a step perhaps mm. too far. So... And we'll make, we'll make this other character seem really, really bad. And let's not do it. Let's, 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 let's change
2: that. Then I'm glad you didn't replace it with a stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. scene. <laughs>
0: No, I, I actually replaced it with. He wakes up like realizing he's sitting in the middle of the square eating tacos. Like, when when did this happen? <laughs> I
1: I didn't choose this, but I'm not mad about yeah. it. <laughs> I'm confused. I mean, I could I couldn't sure be mad I if I woke time. up and found myself eating tacos. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but precisely because I was like, hmm, ethical, ethical, ethical problems mm-hmm. here with this, so let's let's steer away from it instead of instead of opening a whole new can of worms. with Yeah.
3: It. And I think a lot has to do with what you want to do then as an author, you know, I mean, you could, you could say, okay, I want to write a short story about, about the ethics of consent dealing with this kind of magic, for example. And you, you know, it would be not something I want to write, but it's definitely something that a person could write and, and could, could, you know, be, it would be really interesting and useful and valuable. Um, but you don't want that to just overtake this other story that you're telling you know, it was just supposed to be a scene and it's not supposed to be doing that at all. And you, that's not what you want to explore. So sometimes it's just about kind of picking what you want to explore in a given book.
2: No, and that's that's a good point that I think that the, you know, what choices you make as an author about what, because you can't, no book can deal with everything. It's mm-hmm. impossible. So if we're going to talk about ethics, what are you going to pick up and what are you going to highlight and what is going to be, you know, possible to explore in a particular work? Mm-hmm. And that's an act of
0: choice. I am reminded of this terrible movie from the early '90s called Love Potion Number Nine. Do not recommend. But got, is it based on the song. <laughs> very loosely, very loosely. It's got it's one of Sandra Bullock's earliest mm. movies. Um, but like the idea is like these two scientists like find this thing that's supposed to be a love potion, and so they do like study it scientifically. But like the whole way it works is like you drink it, and then when you speak whoever hears you falls instantly madly in love with you for four hours and then despises you for the next four (laughs) hours and then but then because they still wanted to have some sort of like you know happy ending where our two main characters are truly truly in love then they make because that was love potion number eight and then love potion number nine is only supposed to work if there's already this foundation of true love already there else it won't work and that's how they, like, get around that sort of ethical problem. Like, this is still a love potion, though, mm-hmm. isn't
2: it? Does anyone kiss a cop down on 34th and Vine? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Though <laughs> no, there is a delightfully stupid scene where, because the the original potion, they, like, it's, like, very concentrated. And so they have to, like, you know, mix it with water to make it usable. And then one person, like, like takes just a drop of the concentrate and then... When She just takes a drop and then coughs, and then the entire crowd of people chase her down the street. And then she was like, like, stop! And they all stop. She's like, wait, I control all of you right now. It's not a good movie. Idea,
2: <laughs> I feel like we could have an entire.
0: I had cable in my. Ears. We could have an entire sub
2: podcast <laughs> of Marshall recommends bad movies.
0: It's <laughs> a different podcast than we'll do on the other Wednesdays.
1: But I feel like you hit an interesting point, which is we've I've got something. Stick with me. I'm with you. We've We've been thinking a lot about you know the ethics of magic and centering that on the actions of. The person performing the magic but what if you have a world yeah. in which magic can exist outside of the magician yeah. like they can create potions and sell them like then the ethical question like okay i've sold you this potion you do something unethical with it whose fault you know what do i bear responsibility for that because i sold you the potion or you found an amulet in the woods and did things mm-hmm. like if it becomes separated from the creator of the magic that then gets us whole new tangles to be playing with
0: mm-hmm. i made you a thing that turns somebody into a bear what you did with that
2: <laughs> so get in that situation like magicians would have to have such good liability insurance like <laughs> I, I i have no responsibility for what you did with the bear potion
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. and there there is this idea come to think of it in a lot of uh, classic stories that if you find a magical object, it will be because you are somehow destined. You know, there are like you know women lying in ponds giving out swords or whatever, and <laughs> that's no
0: basis for a system of government.
3: <laughs> exactly, <laughs> or or even in Narnia, right? Like the way that the kids get their their special magic items in Narnia is, you know, they're all you know handed out. It's it's Father Christmas, I think, who gives them their mm-hmm. their magical items, and it's it's somehow implied that you know you were destined to have this magical thing, um, which gets around that problem of you know you just have your regular joe happens upon um you know the the healing potion or the uh, and and just does nothing with it because you know what i mean so uh yeah it's kind of a cop out in a way
1: or if you're me playing a game you've hoarded 99 of the healing potions just in case you ever need them (laughs) (laughs) just in case creating a bit of a bubble in the healing potion market (laughs) yeah that's that's the thing then we get into the ethics of of consumption yeah. and When there's healing potion yeah. nfts you know it's just thing.
0: though that that actually does saying nfts makes me think what about magical scams and, yeah you know, or or any sort of any sort of system where you're using magic to be like here's a thing mm-hmm. of value and then s- sell it and but no it has no value yeah think.
1: And that happens with the fae all the time in the old stories. Mm-hmm. It's like here's your right. bag of gold <laughs> that turns to leaves in the morning, and it's like, well, guess that's on you for falling yeah. for a fae trick. But
0: is the legal ramification of like you somebody used an illusion to make me think that this was a Picasso? It, is the law like you fell for it? <laughs> Nobody made you buy it. And that's,
3: I mean, that's another interesting ethical question, which is is. Is there any difference between the Picasso and the magically produced Picasso, right? I mean, if you could make a perfect one-to-one copy of something, is it then that thing? Which, you know, it may be too late in the evening for for me to get my brain around, but,
1: (laughs) you know. But similarly, like, if if you've got the, like, instead of giving you a love potion, I've just made myself incredibly beautiful, Mm -hmm. and and you fall for me that way, like... If you have an encounter with with the fairy who looks beautiful and you walk away happy, does it matter if she actually looks like something else? Like who? Mm-hmm. I feel like that would be a big thing in like magical brothels. Mm-hmm. Like we'll look like whatever you want us yeah. to look like for an hour.
0: Are there ethics of shape shifting? Like it's okay if you like go to the magical brothel and you're like, I'd like somebody who's this tall and such and such. But if you're like, I'd like somebody who looks just like the first lady, then they'd be like, mm, mm-hmm. no, that's not what we do. I mean, we, I always thought that this isn't we, magic. We don't but... replicate
1: Yeah, like the yeah. the the um the Hollow Suites in Star Trek I've always felt were like that's not magic. That's technology. But on that dicey line mm. of like, mm, is it okay to replicate an actual person? <laughs> yeah. Oh.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: if nothing else, it's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> like you have crossed a line of uncomfortableness. <laughs> I'm not well, okay. See,
0: there was a thing where, <laughs> when that very thing happened, like it wasn't like the computer says, no, you can't do that. But it's just like when somebody else it, it's like that's just that's just not done. <laughs> that's, that's real performance. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do it.
3: (laughs) And that's an interesting question about the sort of making yourself beautiful problem. And, you know, it seems like there's seems to be a pattern of of writers wanting to really put a high cost on that, uh, I guess, because, again, it feels like, okay, well, everybody would do it, you know, and and then, there, you know, what would be beautiful then? And uh, it's just tricky to think about. And so I'm thinking, you know, often there are these stories of people who pay a terrible price again there's one in the magicians of someone who pays a terrible price for trying to look beautiful and um the witcher tv series you know there was a lot of uh uh talk about you know that that whole storyline of of um uh and of course there it involved um you know uh, ableism as well and and it's quite complicated if you can change the body and you, then you put a cost on that and i'd be really interested to see um a lot more kind of empowering narratives of people saying, you know what, actually, I don't want to have this body. I want to have a different body. And um, how to, how can we build a magical system that empowers and embraces that um, without running into the, the plot problems that we think we might have? I don't know.
2: Well, I think that raises really good questions if we, if we want to briefly get into them of that the ethics of a magical system aren't just about the in-world ethics, but also what are we saying? hmm in terms of what we're writing for real audiences who are reading our work in the real world. And Mm -hmm. you're right that that storyline in the Witcher hit a lot of buttons and, Mm -hmm. you know, produced a lot of discourse about the questions of ableism and how do we represent bodies in fiction? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess if, if, Your work is going to produce discourse. You you ideally want it to be in a way that you wanted the discourse to be produced, not an accidental byproduct of not thinking about something. Mm -hmm. So, like, what are things we should probably be aware of, at least in terms of creating magical systems that are, you know, aware of the ethics of our own world?
3: Yeah, that's, I think that's probably how to do it is, you know, ask ourselves questions and and be aware of what we're doing, uh, you know, as with all things. Um, And and that is one of them, I think, is, um, are we using magic to have a kind of a cure narrative uh, for disability? Um, And, you know, there's a whole, that's a whole big uh, conversation, you know, uh, about um, the way that magical cures are used and and is it empowering someone or is it uh, making assumptions about what, what that person wants? Um, and then how does that play into um, trans characters and, and what can trans characters do with magic in their body? Is the writer sort of punishing characters um, for wanting to be empowered by this kind of magic in a way that, that has some bad implications as well? Um, I don't know. There's probably other questions too.
2: I mean, one of the things that I think of as moving way back around at the beginning of the episode, when we had the question of if magic is innate, if it's inborn, if it's one of those like it's in the blood kind of things like that can raise some interesting questions about race and ethnicity and how we identify ourselves and identify others and the yeah. question of, of othering people, even if it's something that is considered a gift, like you, you are creating a, a system of haves and have nots that is like quite literally inborn. And is mm-hmm. that what, is that what you wanted to do? And if you did want to do it, are you interrogating it or, Or, you know, folding it in in some way that you recognize the reality of the world that we live in that has historically and currently had some kind of uncomfortable questions about what is inborn, what is innate, what is Mm -hmm. in the blood.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Also, are you creating a system of Mm exotification where, you know, by giving the magic to another culture and only that Mm -hmm. other culture, then are you... are you doing some gross things with mm-hmm. that?
3: Absolutely, and then there's the like questions of, uh, you know, gender. If if one gender has certain powers, and you know, uh, how do you define that, and and where does that come from, and um, you know, th- so that that comes up a lot as well. Um, yeah, and the whole cultural magic system. I mean, that is a whole other, that's a whole other hour, I think. We talk
1: about, you about. <laughs> know, have to come and, back another time. <laughs> yeah, the whole,
3: you know, appropriation and um, and building of magic systems um, is, a, is an interesting conversation, too.
0: Oh, what, who's, it's one of Elizabeth Bear's books, where the magic system, to gain magic, you have to be sterilized. Mm. And so there's a lot more male magicians than female, because for men, it's, you know, snip snip you're done okay now you have Mm -hmm. the magic and it's a lot more of an involved surgery for for Mm -hmm. for women mages and so her main character was a woman mage is like nope i'm gonna do this even though it's it's a lot more to do to to, to get this but you know again you have these huge these ethical questions of like what are the costs and why are these the costs well that was a nice downer yeah Now we need something deep ethical conversations about yeah. body mutilation. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> but also, magic can be fun.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yay! Shiny, <laughs> But it does. I mean, it gets it. It gets at all of this stuff, which I think is what's so so neat about it is you can use it to um, explore all aspects of of the human condition, really. And um, as long as you know, I think Rowena was saying, as long as you're sort of uh, aware and deliberate (laughs) when you're doing that you know then that's uh that's good but of course there are always going to be things too that crop up in our fiction that we didn't realize would crop up and other readers are going to see in it as well and that's just kind of a fact of being a writer
2: you could drive yourself mad trying to anticipate every possible reading of your work
0: or every possible ethical consideration of whatever cans of worms you open in your work
2: well i think we are coming up on our hour And we always like to end our episodes with a guest star, um, with a little bit of guest star world building, where you give us a piece of trivia for the world we're building on air. So what do you have for us, Kate? All right,
3: well, I was thinking about a couple of things. And one of them is that, you know, I find it really interesting what women have in their purses in different periods in history. So, you know, in the 18th century, you might have a nutmeg grater Uh, which is not a thing that we would carry around today because like the need to grate nutmeg does not arise that often. But, you know, in the 18th century, you might be somewhere where there was punch and you needed to have your nutmeg grater. Or in the 19th century, you might have your vinaigrette. And it was a flex. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, look, (laughs) you know, so in the 19th century, you might have your your vinaigrette, which is like smelling salts. You know, it's not a salad dressing, but it's like a little silver box that you would open up so that if you fainted, you would be able to revive yourself or someone would be able to revive you. And, you know, so the idea that things in a purse are not kind of universally common, that it really depends on your society was appealing to me. And so I started thinking about um, what you could have in a purse or a bag. I know that one of the things that, that a previous guest has mentioned is was copper lights, And I was thinking, well, if you have magical copper lights, you've got to have some kind of magical food. It stands to reason. So... <laughs> So you you could have, you know, there's this magical tree pod that, you know, has some sort of temporary effect. And you uh, could, you know, grind that up and put it in a like a vanilla bean and put it in a little silver pot. And you could carry that in your purse. And at the end of all this long, this long thought process, I realized that what I had just invented was magic beans. So I've got magic beans. <laughs>
2: the answer. I love it. I love it, but they're not just magic beans. They're probably magic beans with like like they they, they come with a fancy enameled box that you keep yeah. they keep keep them in and, and yeah. maybe have inscriptions on them or fancy pictures or maybe yeah. even you open them, there's naughty pictures inside. I don't know. Yeah, but I love exactly. It. <laughs> yeah.
3: Fancy magic beans in the purse is, is yeah. what I
2: came up with. Fan. I love it, I
0: love it. Yes. it's love great it.
2: well thank you Kate for being with us and for our magic beans <laughs> <laughs> and absolutely come back sometime and we'll dive into other questions of magic or, or world building or more bad movies for Marshall I don't know
3: we'll... <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much it was great to be here
0: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Worldbuilding for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on March 2nd, and we'll be joined by Pong Shepard to talk about the power of maps. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as Worldbuildcast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.